Well, as Glenn said, uh, we spent the week, uh, my family and I, and the Petrovics, the Klinks were there for half the week, the Surrettes were there, the Taylors were there. So we, we kind of cleared the church out a little bit last week for Peter, though I heard it uh, was quite full. We had a great week together at Muskoka Bible Center, and I preached six sermons through the book of Isaiah, and I thought, well, we're on such a roll, let's keep going. So Prisca, you got another one in, uh, in Isaiah. Yeah, so, but uh, we're in a, a sermon series uh, on prayer. And I said on that first sermon when, uh, when I introduced it that if we had a right view of God and we had a right view of self, then we would be drawn into prayer. It, it would just compel us into prayer. It's not as though we'd have to muster anything up and say, oh, I really ought to pray today. I ought to really do my part for God that's not what prayer is. Prayer is not something where we sort of punch in and punch out the way that an employee punches in and punches out for their employer. Prayer is entirely for our benefit. Now I know God is glorified in our prayers and we can praise Him and, and He takes great pleasure and, and enjoys it and loves it when we come to Him as children to a father. I'm not denying that. But if we truly knew who God was, and we truly knew how, who we were, if we could see the depth of our need, and we could see the riches of God's desire to and ability to meet our need, we would be a praying people. Today, we're going to really hit that nail as hard as we can. And today, what we're going to explore is that great prayers have a right view of God and a right view of self. We're going to take a look at one prayer by heavenly angels, the seraphim, and we're going to look at three prayers by Isaiah, all in the throne room of God. So would you open your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 6? As you're finding your place, would you please stand? Isaiah chapter 6. As we're going through this, just note as we're going through the prayer of the seraphim, the burning ones. These are the angels that are surrounded the throne, surrounding God. And then the three prayers of Isaiah. See if you can identify those three prayers. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up. And the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face. And with two he covered his feet. And with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. The foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, 
This has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? Who will go for us? Then I said, Here I am. Send me. And he said, Go and say to this people, keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. Then I said, how long, O Lord? And he said, until cities lie waste without inhabitant, and houses without people, and the land is a desolate waste, and the Lord removes people far away, and the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land, and though a tenth remain in it, it will be burned again, like a terebinth or an oak whose stump remains when it is felled. The holy seed is its stump. The Word of God. Let's pray. Oh Lord, I pray that you would help us to see who you are from this text and to see who we are and then to rightly order our prayers in light of the two realities. I pray that you would speak through me. I pray that you would bless this church and glorify yourself. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. Please be seated. This morning, I really want to break the sermon down into two parts. Great prayers have a right view of God. That's the first part. And then the second part, great prayers have a right view of self. So let's begin with great prayers have a right view of God. Uh, this chapter begins this way. It says, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne high and lifted up, and the hem of his robe filled the temple. Uh, at the very outset here, Isaiah gets a glimpse of God. Not a very full glimpse, just the hem. In your Bible it might say train, but there's a little debate about the Hebrew word. But we're really talking about the stitching at the bottom of his robe. And we're told that, that stitching at the bottom of the robe of God, who is high and exalted, seated on a throne, filled the temple. At this time, this is the, the Solomonic temple. It's a glorious temple. It's a big temple. And, and, and I don't know if Isaiah is there. He might have been because there's some indication that he had access to the temple, uh, into the holy place. Uh, it might have been a priest. might not. We don't know. But at the very least, this is a vision. He has a vision of himself in the temple. He catches a glimpse of God. All that he can see is the hem of his robe. The very first thing that we hear in this chapter is that this was the year that King Uzziah died. What's significant about that? Well, if we know anything about King Uzziah, we know that he was a great king. 
He reigned for over half a century in Judah. And his time was a time of great prosperity, of great expansion even. He was a military power in the region. He wasn't an empirical power. You would never put his kingdom on on the same scale as Solomon, never on the same scale as Assyria or Babylon. But relative to the rest of Israel's history, this is about as good as it got. He was a strong king, a powerful king, uh, and he had great military success over the Philistines and over Moab and Edom and, and some of the other neighbors. He built up the military, but not only that, he built up uh, the agricultural fruitfulness and produce of the land so that nobody went hungry for almost half a century. He, he was a, ma- a king who, who was interested in irrigation, and, and he helped... The, the people to learn about how to irrigate. He set up watchtowers. Uh, he, he helped the people to learn how to keep the vermin out and the, the predators out. And so there were great crops, bumper crops, year after year. So that in one full cycle of, of until you get to the Jubilee year, there's really not a lot of debt. These were good times. And, and for most of the people alive when King Uzziah died. He's the only king that they ever knew. Sort of like Queen Elizabeth today, right? Most of us have never known a different queen. Now, she's more symbolic than powerful, and King Uzziah had real power. He made a real difference in the life of the people. Now, this is great, except it can somehow shield their view of God. They didn't really need to look to God the way other generations had. They didn't depend on God militarily. They didn't depend on God agriculturally. They didn't depend on God for their debts the way other generations had to. And in that sense, we have a lot in common with them, right? Uh, One of the great plagues of being blessed with comfort and riches is God becomes sometimes a footnote in our theological scaffolding, but he doesn't become the foundation of our lives. I'll just go to the the supermarket. I'll go to the drive-thru. I will get food however I get food. I don't need God to fill my bank account. I don't need to even depend on God for my retirement savings. I can look after myself. Thank you very much. And we are comfortable. Why pray? And the Canadian Army is not that strong, but we're in the shadow of the United States. Anyone who picks on us picks on President Trump and his military. They'll leave us alone. So we have a lot in common with the people in Judah when King Uzziah died. And we don't really know much about Isaiah, but we can guess from what he has written that he was a pious man. He loved the Lord. That he sought the Lord. That God was more than a footnote in Isaiah's life. And yet, this vision of God rocked him to the core. And the way that it's written at the, at the beginning makes you think that even Uzziah, I mean, sorry, even Isaiah was distracted by King Uzziah in his faith life. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the king. The king had to die for Isaiah to see the king of kings, the Lord sitting on a throne. And he was high and lifted up. 
And when we get down to Isaiah's prayer, just see what Isaiah says about God. He calls him the king. Sometimes we can't see the true king because of our relative comfort. What is it that obstructs our view of God? Why is it that we don't pray to God the way we maybe ought to pray to God or the way we want to pray to God? Is there some truth in the challenge that we are far too comfortable to see God for who He is? Truly. Going on, we see that Isaiah says, when he had a right view of God, he said, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne. That's almost true. High and lifted up, and the train or the hem, the stitching of his robe, filled the temple. So we don't know how much of the throne that Isaiah saw. We don't know if it was an impression or not, but we know that Isaiah saw God not just sitting on a throne, not a meek and mild God, not a God that you can treat casually, but a giant of a God. A God who is highly exalted. A God where you can't even see the top of Him for how high He is. And you are just trying to get through the train of His robe, but you see that He is a big God. And this introduces a theme that weaves throughout the book of Isaiah where the Lord is high and lifted up. And we might get into a systematic theological sort of trying to understand God through His attributes. God is omnipotent. That is all power. He's omniscient. He, he knows everything. He's omnipresent. That in some way, everything is done in the face of God. Not that He fills everything, but that He is present everywhere. So that's a, a systematic theological way of understanding who God is. And Isaiah says, oh, I don't have time to articulate it, but I'll tell you who God is. He is high and He is lifted up. So, so Isaiah comes to God with these sort of spatial understanding. And throughout the book of Isaiah... God is the exalted one. He is the high and lifted up one. And everyone else and everything else, including all nature, is low. Except for the problem that we exalt ourselves. So that God doesn't seem that high. I, I can almost look across and see Him because I've exalted myself in my own mind. And I have created Him or brought Him down into my own image so that I can sort of see him not as my equal, he's better than me, but this distance between me and him shrinks somehow. And this past week, Steve West was going through the attributes of God, and one thing that he said is, it is literally impossible to have a thought big enough for God. And he says, in the history of the world, no one has had a, a thought that captures the bigness of who God is. And that's what Isaiah is saying here. And yet I wonder, is that true for us? Do we realize that? Do we know how big God is? The seraphim are all around God. That, and seraphim just means burning ones. So these are, these are angels that are on fire for God, literally. <laughs> they are burning and that, that itself, their proximity to God indicates that they're on fire and fire is, is this image that we get of God, that God is a consuming fire and even those close to Him are burning ones. And look at what we hear there. 
Above him, verse 2, stood the seraphim, the burning ones, and each had six wings. With two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. Six wings, and four of the six wings are used for a shield between these burning ones. You might expect that these are as holy as you get in creation. They are set apart by God to revolve around his throne and to be in close proximity to him. And yet, what do they do with their wings? Well, with two, they cover their face. Why? So that they don't look at God and blow apart. They cannot gaze upon God or they would be destroyed. And they've never sinned. And with two, they cover their feet. Why? We're told that these seraphim, these burning ones, were above God. They covered their feet so that God couldn't see them. Because the direct gaze of God would destroy them. And with two wings they flew. Why? To minister to God. To serve Him. Now if the seraphim, the the holiest of angels that we could fathom, uh, are in this kind of a posture, not gazing upon God, blocking God's gaze of them, now all of a sudden, imagine if you're in the presence of that God, looking at God and He is looking at you. What chance do we have? This is a big God. He is a consuming fire. Look at the prayer of the seraphim. See, the seraphim have a right understanding of God and they have a right understanding of self. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. We don't have a lot of time to get into what, what, do, what do they mean by holy, holy, holy. Holiness is a word that means several different things. In its most broad sense, it means the spiritual realm. The spiritual realm, are, are, that's a holy realm. So that even pagan witch doctors are holy men. That, that's not the way we use the word holy. But that's, the word itself has that breadth of semantic range. Semantic range just means what could this word mean. Now, if we come into our own thinking, we, we use it of God. And we first understand this word spatially. Again, thinking about God spatially. In Leviticus, God sets up reality into categories. You have holy, you have clean, and you have unclean. Okay. So clean and unclean, those are two categories reserved for creation. Holy now is reserved for God. And now God says, in order to understand who I am, I want to teach you who I am spatially. I want you to set up a tabernacle. This tabernacle became the temple. And I want you to have a room and we're going to call that the holy place. And it's not easy to get into that room. There's a lot of things that you need to do to purify yourself so you can get into that room. And you have to be a priest. So you have to have the right genealogy and you have to have the right calling. You have to be the right age. You have to have the right rituals. You have to be pure. You can't be unclean. You have to be clean, not only clean, you have to be sanctified to go in there. Okay, that's one room. Now, I want you to put a curtain up in that room and I want you to have a second room. Holy, holy room. Two times holy. And just all of this is an object lesson to teach you how big and holy I am. Nobody goes in there except for the high priest once a year and he has to kill a, 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 a bull 
and he has to cleanse himself and he has to be very careful and he has to come in with blood from a goat. And once a year, and the practice was tie something around his waist. I don't think that's in the Bible in case he dies. Because it's not, you're taking your life in your hands if you go into the holy, holy room. So again, in keeping with Isaiah having a spatial understanding of God, he's not in the holy room. He's not in the holy, holy room. He's in the holiest of holy rooms. Holy, holy, holy. If the high priest can go into the holy, holy place once a year, who can stand in front of a holy, holy, holy God? That's the point. So holy here is just a word that we cram everything we know and don't know about God. And we say, I I have no words to describe who God is. Let's just use the word holy. And let's say it three times. Because we can't really describe God. The whole earth is full of His glory. What the seraphim are saying in their right understanding of God is you want to have even a glimpse of the glory and the majesty and the exaltation of who God is? Take a look at the universe. Could you put the universe on a scale? Because glory in the Hebrew it means heaviness. You want to know how big God is? You want to know how great God is? Take everything in creation and put it on a scale and weigh it up. How much does it weigh? God's heavier. God's bigger. Do, do we have a right understanding of God? Thunderstorms, hurricanes, volcanic eruptions, earthquakes. The Milky Way, the Andromeda Galaxy. Just a speck in the hand of God. He's big and powerful, exalted. So who are we? You know, when it comes to prayer, the... We have it exactly the opposite way around. Oh, I know I should pray. Who are we to pray to God? Because our prayers make it to that holy, holy, holy place. They're received by the holy, holy, holy God. How sad it is that we struggle to pray. It's because we don't really know who God is. Now, Isaiah is getting a sense of who God is. And listen to his prayer. Verse 5. Woe is me! Like he calls down a woe upon himself. What does the word woe mean? We like to use the word woe in an aggressive way. Like, woe, you got it coming to you. And there's a sense in which that is there, but it's more uh, understanding. It's like, oh my goodness, do you know what's coming to you? Like, I feel for you. There's a little more compassion in the Hebrew word or the Hebrew understanding of that word. Woe to you is it's coming and 
I feel bad. I, I, I hurt for you. I'm in despair for you. And that's what, well, that's what Isaiah is saying. Ah! I've caught a glimpse of God. He gives us three reasons why he calls this woe on himself. He says, for I am lost. Lost is not a great word. It's not a good translation. The better one is, I'm undone. I am unraveling. Or, I'm going to be blown apart. I, I, am, I do not have the constitution to be in this place. That's the first thing. Woe is me because I am undone. I am unraveling. I, I, I cannot stand here and live. Number two, for I am a man of unclean lips and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. He immediately understands his sin. And he goes, Why does he say unclean lips? Out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. And, and Isaiah is a spokesman for God. How can I speak for God if my heart is in the condition that it is? So, woe is me. I'm undone. I, I'm not fit constitutionally to be in the presence of a God this great. And woe is me because though I understood myself to be a spokesperson for God, I have no right to speak for this God. And I live amongst a people of unclean lips. Uh, Israel was called to be a light to the nations, a kingdom of priests. They were supposed to speak to the nations on behalf of God, but they are not fit for that task either. Third thing that he says, woe is me. Third thing, the third reason that he brings a woe on himself, he says, for my eyes have seen the King. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the king, the Lord of hosts. I may have been able to walk into the presence of King Uzziah, and there's much speculation that Isaiah had a VIP pass to the, to the kings of, of Judah. But I don't have that same right to be in the presence of the King of kings and the Lord of lords so isaiah has a right understanding of himself and his prayer is a prayer we might call it a prayer of confession it's not it's not fully a prayer of confession it's more of a he just explodes verbally because he's just in awe of god and he reflects upon the this distance between the glory of god and who he really is that's the doorway to prayer Look at the answer to this prayer. Then, verse 6, Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. I love it. John Oswald says this, How hot was that coal if a burning one had to use tongs to pick it up? That's a good point. So what we have here, this, this coal represents then the holy, holy, holiness of God. And in other places we're told that God is a consuming fire. So the, not even the burning one could touch the thing that represents the full glory of God. He uses tongs and he picks it up and he flies over to Isaiah. 
in verse 7, he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. This is completely unexpected. We, we take this for granted, right? Our sins have been nailed to the cross. It's true. So now we can approach the throne of grace boldly. It's true. Let's not be casual with this. What we have here in, in this burning one taking a coal from, from the embers before God's throne and touching his lips, that's a picture of atonement. In the book of Isaiah, what's going to happen is Isaiah is acting out what God is going to do through Israel. He is going to consume them as a burning fire through exile. And then he's going to burn them down again further until he burns Israel down to a remnant of one. We're going to get to that at the end of the chapter. And then the remnant of one who comes through the consuming fire fire of God's judgment will take upon Himself more judgment and wrath from God. And then if we find ourselves in Him, He becomes our fire blanket. So that we are atoned for and we come through the judgment of God, which is fire. And then, and only then, are we like Isaiah can we say that our guilt is taken away and our sin atoned for? And yet, we must not become casual and domestic with God. Because look at what it costs God to burn away our sin. Jesus Christ had to be roasted in the fires of hell on the cross of His crucifixion. That's what this coal is. But, and I want to now balance it the other way, what we don't want to do is stay in this woe is me posture. Because that presupposes that the atonement never happened. And too many Christians stay in the God. You are holy and wonderful and blessed, but woe is me! No. Now, a right understanding of that is important. That opens the door for us, but praise God for the atonement. Now look at Isaiah's second prayer. Verse 6-8. I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? Now look at how far Isaiah has come because of atonement. Before atonement, woe is me. I am undone. I'm an unclean man. I'm a sinner. I'm not fit constitutionally to be in the presence of God. And I've seen something and someone that I shouldn't have seen. That's his first prayer. Then comes atonement. And then comes Isaiah's second prayer. Here I am. Send me. What boldness. Precisely. Because God has invited him to be bold. Your guilt is taken away. So don't say, woe is me. Woe is you when you bear your sin and your own iniquity. But after that is burned away, after that is atoned for, when I speak to you, why not volunteer and say, oh, I'm here. Could you use me? Now again, let's not get it mixed up. It's not as though Isaiah is standing there all of a sudden saying, God, you're pretty lucky to have me. 
You just burned away my sin, and now you need me. But there's still boldness. There's, there's still this, I don't know what, what I could do. I don't know what use I will be. But you're looking for someone to do something. You're looking for a servant. You're looking for a messenger. Could you use me? Because of what you have done for me in Christ, could you use me? That's instructive for us. And God answers that prayer in verses 9 through 10. He says, okay, I will use you. Go and say to this people, keep on hearing but do not understand. Keep on seeing but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and blind their eyes lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. All right, you want to be used? I've atoned for your sin. I've got a mission for you. This is what I want you to do. I want you to preach your heart out and I want you to preach for your whole life and I want you to write it down and neither in your lifetime nor in the time to come where I want you to blind people's eyes and stop their ears so that they don't get a glimpse of me. Really? That's what you want me to do? I don't understand, but because of who you are and because of who I am, see, it's the same posture. I'll do it. I'll do it. But then we come to Isaiah's third prayer and he says, Okay, I will do it, but how long? How long do you want me to conceal you in plain sight? And God answers and He says, until cities lie waste without inhabitants and houses without people and the land is a desolate waste and the Lord removes people far away and the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. I want you to, in other words, I'll translate this, I want you to preach until I carry my people into exile. There's not going to be a revival. I want you to go out there and speak the truth. I want you to be plain. But people aren't going to respond, Isaiah. They're not going to understand who I am. They're going to go about sinning. But your preaching will condemn them. And your preaching, because you reveal my, me to them, and they do not repent, and there is no revival, I will bring the curses of Deuteronomy 28 down on their heads. I will carry them into exile. Now, if we know anything about Isaiah, he didn't live to see this. So I got ahead of myself in the last section. So Isaiah preached for his entire life. And then he wrote it down. And then his preaching lived on in the book that he wrote. And the people still didn't understand. It was as if it was a sealed book. So for the life of Isaiah, and then for the century and a half after his life, his preaching closed their eyes until the exile. Just as God wanted now, I might say, well, I'll, I'll preach for 10 years, but hopefully after 10 years, we're going to see a great revival through South Shore. We're going to pray a revival down. Well, maybe not. Well, at least, you know, my, my sermons are recorded. After I die, you know, artists are always worth more after they die. After I die, someone, maybe on the other side of the world, is going to discover what good stuff we preached here at South Shore. And there's going to be a revival, maybe in Australia, because of technology. Maybe not.
The Lord goes on and he says, I'm going to deliver a remnant out of, Egypt, or out of Babylon. That's implied in verse 13. But then I'm going to burn that remnant again. I'm going to burn it and burn it and burn it. Refine it, refine it, refine it. Until I've got one man out of the whole nation. So Isaiah is really preaching to an audience of one. We talk about that, but that's true. And when Jesus launched his ministry, he went to Isaiah 61. He says, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me. And you know what? All of Isaiah's preaching and everything that he wrote down in his humanity informed Jesus about who he was and what his mission was. And so Isaiah quite literally preached to an audience of one, the Holy Seed, the Messiah. And the Messiah says, I get it. My eyes aren't closed. My ears aren't stopped. And now I come to fulfill it. But back to us in our prayer life. How long, O oh Lord, are you asking me to pray and to preach and to serve? Until I get what I want? Until we see the church explode in this land? No, just be faithful. Then we get to Isaiah's fourth prayer. But it's not here. Now I would say that the book indicates for us what Isaiah's fourth prayer might have sounded like. Okay. Because of who you are, because of who I am, I'll do it. I'll do it. Isaiah was never popular, but after uh, King Manasseh came on the throne, he caught him, put him in a hollowed out tree. Some legends say he cut that tree in half. But Isaiah knew who God was. And he knew who he was. And so he lived a life of prayer and service to the glory of God. Great prayers, then, are not done out of cold obedience. Oh, I know. I'm a Christian. I should go to prayer meetings. I know I should pray before I eat. I know I should pray when I wake up and when I go to bed. You know, if, if that's the reason that you're praying, if that's the posture of your heart, just don't pray. Don't come to prayer meeting. Because that's not the kind of prayer God wants. What God wants is for you to stop throughout your day to just take a moment to remember who he is and, what, and who you are and what he has done for you. And then see if you pray. And that's a prayer that God wants. And so let us pray. God, forgive us when, for us, we feel that our prayers are, are some, in some way us doing you a favor. Forgive us when we don't want to pray. It's because we, we forget who you are and we forget who we are. We forget how needy we are and we forget how abundant in grace you are and how much you desire to lavish upon us all the riches that you have to give. 
Forgive us, Lord, when our prayers are uh, pre-atonement prayers, when we just say, woe is me, and we loathe ourselves as if Christ hadn't died for us. Lord, help us to remember always as incomplete a portrait as we have, help us to remember who you are and who we are and by your grace and your Holy Spirit, lead us in prayer. We ask these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.